And it really is about letting go of, of trying to make sure everything is within your control um, and, and letting go of trying to make sure that everything's perfect, that you are perfect, that you are doing all that you can do because sometimes you just really need to take a break and take care of yourself. Welcome to She Brigade, the podcast. I'm your host, Bilundle Musimere. On this podcast, we bring you amazing trailblazing women to come and share their life and career journeys with you. From entrepreneurs to 95ers, join us as each guest takes you through all of the highs and all the lows of their journeys that have led them to being who they are today. Welcome to another episode of She Brigade. Thank you for tuning in once again. Remember guys, if you love this episode, please share it with a friend. Okay, so today's guest is Pilonomi Muilwa. Pilonomi graduated from biomedical engineering and then electrical engineering from Wits University. She's a Mellon Guardian top 200 young South African for 2019 and also has her master's degree in biomedical engineering from Tohoku University in Japan. Pilonomi is currently working as a data scientist at one of the leading banks in South Africa, working on data analytics solutions within the data-driven intelligence team. She spends her spare time on community tech initiatives and pushes for machine learning fairness. On this episode, Pilonomi takes us through her journey in tech in South Africa and abroad, and also shares the challenges that she's faced along the way, which include mental health issues, inclusion and belonging, and so much more. So, without wasting any more time, let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Pilonomi. Thank you. I'm like beaming behind my computer here because it's so nice to have a Zona person to speak to because you just pronounced my name so lovely. <laughs> that was so great. Okay, cool. Yeah. And you know what? I totally understand what you mean because um, even with me, every time... I interview someone who's twa- who's Twana. Mm. I get excited, and it just goes to show how much representation <laughs> is needed, like across different cultures, across different you know languages as well. And for something like this, it can be an absolute killer because I mean, you you want to perceive be perceived in a particular way, and you don't want to give the person interviewing you or whatever or having a conversation with a hard time, but they'll be like, oh, am I pronouncing your name right? And you're like, no, this is, this is not the time for us to correct your pronunciation on my name. <laughs> Let's just get on with the conversation. And it, it, it could just be such a killer. So I'm very pleased. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So on the show, we like to start all the way from the beginning. So I want you to take us back, take us all the way back to Bilonomi growing up, what it was like growing up and um, your childhood upbringing and your schooling. Sure. Um, so I guess I'll start where the main question comes from when people see that I'm a Bilonomi and they look at my face and they um, start to have questions. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I was born into a mixed family. Um, I have an older sister, she's five years older than me, um, and my father is a Tswana man from the rurals of the Northwest, and my mother is um, ordinary, ordinary, just just English white, um, and she grew up in Cape Town. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that's, I guess, my journey began with their journeys, um, and as I mentioned, my dad's a rural man, um, <laughs> originally. And my mom's a, a city girl, um, 
and they were both rebels in their own ways, but still quite firm and rooted in their principles. Um, and that's the kind of household that I grew up in. Um, and yeah, in preschool, I went to a very Africana preschool um, that had all the pretty smooth kids in Yeovil. And so I did a lot of my growing up in Yeovil. Um, <laughs> Yeovil now is not a people that people place that people venture into at the moment. Like even if you're with an Uber driver, <laughs> the Uber driver doesn't want to go through Yeovil. But it was slightly different. Oh, um, <laughs> back in the day, it was very mixed and filled with a lot of lefties mm. and a lot of music people, a lot of artists, and a lot of um, retired freedom fighters. And, and when I say freedom fighters, I think they were more the the type to to not necessarily be affiliated with particular sides of the struggle. Um, so my parents were working specifically in the unions um, and that's how they were involved in the struggle. But it was a really lovely place to grow up. Um, played in the street a lot. Um, have my scars from sliding down the road. Have my scars from the stories of Tootsies jumping in and out of people's yards because it was Yeovil. Um, and then <laughs> later on, I went, to we moved to a safer neighborhood um, because yeah, the Oval started getting quite bad. Um, and I moved into a place called Kensington, which is towards closer to the east side of, of Johannesburg, but still fairly close to the middle. Um, and in primary school, I went to Saxon World Primary School, which was um, quite a mixed primary. No, I'm lying, it wasn't mixed. Um, <laughs> we didn't we didn't have very many white people in my grade. I think they they kind of weeded out. But um, in terms of culture and um, ethnicity, it was quite a mixed school, and that was quite an amazing environment to do my fundamental growing in. And it was also a school that had lots of extramurals, so I was involved with all of the sports and all of the other things because my mum was a hardworking mum, and and she go and be fetch me at five or six every day. So I just preoccupied myself with extreme meals. Mm. Um, and that then followed through into the next phase, which was high school, a JB high school for girls. And there I also just joined everything and did everything because <laughs> even though my, my, my house was like, I think one mile, almost exactly, 1.6 kilometers away from school, it was all uphill. And we had these black blazers mm. and you weren't allowed to take off your blazer if you were in public. And I hated walking up that hill in my black blazer. So I would just stay at school and do all the extramurals and wait for my mom to finish work and pick me up on my way home. <laughs> um, and I'm really, really grateful for the opportunities of those, both, both of those schools um, to do all sorts of different kinds of sports and cultural activities because I really do think that it instilled a type of discipline and a type of dedication um, that just going to school and, and not doing anything um, doesn't afford you in the same kind of way. Um, and in high school, I started off not being a little bit under the radar. Um, I think in grade eight with my main group of friends, some of them didn't make it all the way through. <laughs> um, and teachers didn't pay much attention to me and I was like in the D team and the tennis team. Um, but by the end of high school, I was, I was quite prominent there. Um, I had a lovely group of friends who supported me in everything that I did. And 
a lovely group of people and teachers who as well supported me in everything I did. And um, by the end of it, I was head girl and I was head of and captain of the netball team and head of this and head of that and doing this and doing that and mm-hmm. um, just, just doing a lot, doing all the things um, because I could and because I enjoyed doing it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if, if you have any questions up until that point. So, so given that you were like into so many different things, what did you want to be at that age? Like in high school, what did you think you were going to be growing up? Um, well, I suppose because I've always been a fairly capable little human. I mean, like in primary school, I'd be the only girl on the cricket team or the only girl playing soccer. Um, so I knew I wanted to go into an industry that wasn't dictated by um, my identity. So I knew I wanted to do something like engineering or architecture or something like that because I was good at math and science. And um, I wanted to go and prove myself in a field where people in the outside world might have, might have told me I didn't necessarily belong. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to do something like engineering because I also really liked the idea of problem solving. But at that age, you really have no idea what a career is and what it's about. Um, yeah. You have no idea what university is about. You have no idea what university courses are about. I just knew I didn't want to do accounting and business because <laughs> I sucked at accounting. Um, <laughs> and I knew I didn't want to do the, the more hardcore sciences, like to be a physicist or a biologist or something like that. So I think I was bordering on an application type field. So engineering or actually medicine, I was, I was seriously considering that as well. Mm. Because my mom's a doctor. Okay, and, how did you, and how did you end up deciding to... Oh, well, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> but <laughs> then you decided to get your bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering. Yeah. Um, That's what people, you to do, yeah. Yeah, these people from WITS came to my school um, and they showed us what biomedical engineering was about and they sold us dreams and I caught on to that dream and I was like, that's a dream I want to dream. <laughs> and then I decided that's what I was going to do because it was a nice merger of um, the maths and physics side um, because, I mean, what, what they explained to us about it was things like um, artificial organs or artificial limbs and like machine-human mm. type interfaces and things like that. And I was very passionate um, about helping people, I guess, in, in a medicine sense um, based off of my mother's history. But... I also wasn't absolutely sure about going into medicine and studying for seven years and going through all of the traumas that our medical professionals need to go through. Um, And I wasn't even fully aware of those types of traumas until I later made some medical friends, but I had a sense that it was a very long and hard and difficult journey. um, And I wanted a different kind of difficult journey. Yeah. Yeah. And... So now, now that you've decided that okay, you're going to study biomedical engineering, at what point did electrical engineering come into the play? Because it's engineering, but it's different. It's very different. Yeah, so <laughs> biomedical engineering is absolute torture. I would not recommend it to anybody. Um, it's a little bit of a nonsense degree because you go through, you're basically doing medicine and electrical engineering at the same time. Sure. Um, so we did modules and, and courses like anatomy and physiology along with the medical students on the medical campus. But then we also did the most 
torturous electrical engineering type um, courses like signals and systems and engineering mathematics. Um, so those three years were really, really, really tough. And because I had come out of this journey of really pushing myself and applying a lot of pressure on myself, being the person that I was in high school, um, those three years absolutely finished me. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, at the end of those three years, it's um, the biomedical engineering at FITS is a uh, what kind? Of, it's it's like a bachelor's degree. It's not an honors type degree in the same way other engineering degrees are. So either you have to go on and do a master so that you can be taken seriously out there in the real world as a biomedical engineer, I guess. But in South Africa at that point, there really wasn't many types of career paths viable for that kind of um, field. If, if like me, you were a person who wanted to go out there and build things that actually help people. In terms of research, there's always space for things like that. But I wanted to join a company where I could go and make things to help people and there weren't many of those in South Africa. And then I also didn't have this proper degree after all of this torture. So the two main paths um, by medical engineers from FITS would go into at that stage was either you switch over to medicine and then you just have a, an engineering foundation and it's kind of like a double major situation, um, or you go into electrical engineering. And because we had spent some time with the medical students, <laughs> I was a little bit horrified by them. Um, you're like, no thanks. Yeah, no. And like at some stage, I think I caused a bit of drama because um, in, the, in, <laughs> in the lecture theater, people would like sit on the edge of the theater. Um, but they're the type of seats where you can't get into the middle unless you like shuffle along. So if anybody came late to class um, or if like the sides of the aisles were full, then people started sitting on the floor and on the stairs and... I remember taking a picture of it and posting it on the, on the class's Facebook page and being like, you want, you're learning to care for other people, but you don't care for each other. And oof, I opened up oh, a little goodness. can of worms there. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, after that kind of thing, I was just like, this is, this is not the environment I will thrive in. Um, and it was quite different to engineering where we were literally all each other's crutches because we just couldn't <laughs> go through it alone. Um, it was a very much a team team type culture, a, a sharing culture because we knew we just couldn't do it by ourselves, and I preferred that kind of that kind of culture rather than the highly competitive culture of the of the medical students. So I chose electrical engineering, but <laughs> um, in second year I I got a part time job with Red Bull, um, probably one of their less conventional looking um, Red Bull girls driving around in a little mini. Um, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. It gave me all sorts of lovely opportunities and I, I met all sorts of wonderful people, some of which are still in my life now. But um, it meant that I was spending a lot of time at work and not enough time on maths. And I nearly failed maths in second year. In fact, I'm pretty sure I failed maths in second year and they just rounded off my mark to a nice fat 50. <laughs> it was like probably like 49.3. And they were like, let's just, let's just push it through. <laughs> um, so I chose the more computer software side of the electrical engineering degree because it meant I wouldn't have to do third year engineering maths. Um, and that's because I just knew I would not be able to catch up on my second year maths and I was afraid um, of repeating. So I chose the computer side. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and then I believe you, you got a scholarship to do your master's um, 
in biomedical engineering in Japan. Yeah. So I hadn't quite let go of my passion for wanting to be with medicine. And um, you went back. It was all the same direction of my life. So it was all in the same direction. It was fine. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I was still really passionate about incorporating the, the medical part um, because I, I find the body a really, really fascinating thing. And I was particularly fascinated with brains and how they work and um, yeah, that part was really, really exciting for me. So in my final year of, of my electrical engineering degree, um, I applied for the scholarship. And while I was doing my electrical engineering, I was doing like vacation work at CSIR, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. And um, Again, somebody had come to the university and advertised what data science was. And at that time, it really wasn't a cool thing. Um, like everyone else was doing really cool internships, like going to McKinsey or like going to an engineering firm or, or some mm. or intellect even. <laughs> and, and here was little me going off to this little um, research place and not many people wanted to do it. And um, I mean, even in my final year, we had a, a data science project and you're supposed to bid for the project and it's supposed to be this really competitive process about um, getting the project that you want. And I think only two groups wanted to do the data science project. So at that time, nobody, <laughs> it wasn't a cool thing yet. Um, and I just, by the grace of the universe, um, came into contact with it. So I was doing um, work with the CSIR and um, the people at the CSIR, specifically Dalton Lunga, and then later on, Bukosi Maribate and with a lot of influence from a guy called Clinton Williams and his team, um, they really pushed for the people involved in that program to go and do their masters um, in data science. And specifically, Dalton wanted um, the people <laughs> to do their masters in deep learning because it was this thing that was coming up as something being really, really important. Um, and I guess he's really passionate about. Um, developing young people in order to be able to um, contribute to the field that, that he's dedicated his life to. And so I knew I wanted to do my master's in deep learning and I was going to do it with the CSIR, but I got this mail in my mailbox from the people at the CSIR saying that there was this opportunity. And I had this desire in the back of my mind of doing my master's overseas because I knew if I was going to go overseas, it would be then when I wasn't trying to establish a career or I wasn't trying to move a family or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to go overseas, but I had no interest in Europe or America because I see too much of that on TV. Um, and so <laughs> I was really interested in going to the East and Japan is a place of supposedly um, extremely well-advanced technology. And I thought it would be a great place to go. So I just applied for it. Um, and the universe just decided it's, it's what I would do. And so I did do data science, but um, because I wanted to do the biomedical engineering stuff, I wanted to exercise the data science techniques, specifically the deep learning stuff, um, on, a, on a brain application, because I was still very much interested in, in brain-computer interface type things. Um, so I did lots of Googling, lots of Google translating, and found a lab um, in the northern part of Japan in a city called Sendai. And um, the professor there responded to my email 
um, this random little South African human, just emailing him, finding out about his lab and seeing if he would be willing to take on an international student. Um, and he responded saying he would and got the scholarship. And, and then a couple months later, I was in Japan. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's what happened. That must have been so interesting because, like you're saying, um, Japan is known to be very technologically advanced. And for someone who's actually studying the field as it's developing and as it's growing and to be living there, that must have been so exciting for you. It was mad. It was absolutely mad. Um, like, I have this picture of myself in the CSIR mirror when I got the email confirming the scholarship of like my eyes just bulging red. Because <laughs> oh, as soon as I got the email, I just started crying because I was like, oh man, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? Um, and initially I was, I was really hopeful and really excited about this experience. Um, but I, I think to my detriment, I had far too many expectations about exactly what it was that I wanted out of this experience. Um, and I mean, yeah, we do think of Japan as being a highly technically advanced place, but um, reflecting on it now, I think the result of that is a result of millions and millions of people having access to opportunities um, within the country. So, of course, whatever comes out of the top of it and gets shared with the rest of the world is going to be the top, top cream of the crop type stuff. Um, but that wasn't necessarily my experience. Um, my master's degree, I didn't learn much more than I already knew in terms of my field. Um, well, at least not, it wasn't taught to me. I had to go and do online courses um, to supplement what I wasn't learning in class. Um, and I learned a whole lot of other stuff that was not related to my degree or my field or my career in any way. Because um, six months into... Being there, I had to um, wait six months in order to write an entrance exam to get into the master's program. Luckily for me, that, that exam fell away for some reason. Again, the university magic. Um, but it was then, <laughs> only after that six months, that I found out my whole master's degree was going to be in Japanese. Um, and even though I would be able to submit things in English, um, <laughs> none of the material or the lectures or anything else was in English um, so luckily I had spent that six months because I was a bit bored and as I say I, I like to busy myself um, I went and I did an intensive Japanese course and I was the only person um, from my scholarship program so there was many of us Africans who were shipped off to Japan um, <laughs> I think there was eight of us in that city and I was the only one who decided to do this intensive Japanese course um, yeah. so it, it helped but it wasn't enough I mean what's biomedical engineering yeah. in Japanese I don't know <laughs> I know how to say hello <laughs> I know how to um, identify what food I'm yeah. eating <laughs> yeah I know how to ask for directions at the train station I know how to flush the toilet very important because all of the symbols oh. on the toilet are in Japanese um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think out of my entire two years of a, of a master's program, and it was about half research component, half lectures, only four of my lectures were in English. Um, and like there was this one class where I go to the dude afterwards and I just after the first class and I'm like, hey, man, 
I, I don't speak Japanese <laughs> at this level. Um, and he was basically like, there's no English equivalent for this textbook in Japanese. You'll just have to find your own. Um, and luckily, a lot of it was revision from stuff that I had already done, but it was so hard. And at the end of every lecture, they would give me a quiz um, to complete on the lecture's content. But the quiz would be in Japanese, so I'd have to quickly whip out my phone and try and translate the content back into English for me to try and understand the question, which, of course, didn't work really well because translation tools aren't that great. And then I would have to try and remember from my career of engineering trauma <laughs> adverts um, about what I remembered about the subject um, and, and then try and answer the question. And it was, oh, it was, it was a mess. It was such a mess. So mm. when I say I didn't learn much in terms of um, actual content from that experience, I learned so much about life and expectations and just learning whatever it is you can learn, even if it's not what you expect to. Yeah. Sure. And well, somehow you made it through. <laughs> I'm not sure if I made it through. <laughs> I think I died somewhere in the process and just like came back to life. It was a miracle. Came back to life. Yeah. And rose again. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, like, sure, that's the academic um, environment, but I was in quite a conservative part of the country where people, um, there weren't very many foreigners already. So people didn't really speak English in general. It wasn't just in the class, you know? Um, mm. so even within the class, the students in my class, and I was um, one of two international students and the other international student wasn't in all my classes. Sometimes I'd go through like an hour long lab where, um, I'm supposed to be conducting some kind of experiment or learning from some kind of person in the hospital or whatever. And I'm in this class of like 30 or so people and no one's talking to me because nobody is confident in the English. And they were all chatting and asking questions to the lecturer and laughing, telling jokes, blah, 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 blah. And I wouldn't have one person speak to me in this whole, like, afternoon of us, of us doing a site visit. And that kind of stuff was, was a lot. It was really crazy. Um, mm. Yeah. What, what do you think are some of the biggest takeaways from this journey for you? Sure. I probably should have expected that question and I should have prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the first was to let things go um, and especially to let expectations go. Um, and as I mentioned, I expected to go and have this crazy technological cutting edge education from, mm -hmm. from this institution. And I have to let go of those kinds of prospects. And I think with some opportunities and some expectations, they, they don't get handed to you. I think I've been very fortunate in ways that things the universe has given to me, like the opportunity to get the scholarship, the opportunity to go to the CSI, the opportunity to go to VITS. Um, but some expectations you have to create the manifestation of those yourself. So... I mean, like I mentioned, I did those online courses to supplement what I didn't know in order to achieve what I wanted to try to achieve. But yeah, letting go was probably the, the biggest part of what I learned there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, no. Okay, so then um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your journey in terms of like being back in South Africa, um, now what you've learned coming back to South Africa and 
going into at the corporate world? Mm. Um, so to be honest, even with my undergraduate biomedical engineering degree and my undergraduate electrical engineering degree and then my master's in biomedical engineering, I started applying to places in South Africa for a job while I was in Japan. And I just got rejection after rejection after rejection. <laughs> um, and I think this is a huge misconception that we tell people you'll get educated and then you'll be sorted for life, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think the way that I got into corporate was through a friend who was in a team who needed some data scientists and he took a shot at me um, and convincing his team to take me on. But I think, again, we just... We absolutely underestimate um, the unemployment issues that we have in the country in terms of being employable. There is so much cultural and network knowledge that you need in order to get your foot into the door. And school doesn't teach you that. Um, university doesn't teach you that. And even me coming from a fairly middle-class family that had its business in order, um, without too much drama, I wasn't even necessarily equipped with the types of tools that got me in the door. Um, and yeah, sure, it may have been also the fact that my name is black on paper and I am a woman that might have had a factor in those things. But also at the same time, I mean, we're always told, oh no, you only got the job because um, <laughs> you're black and female, you know? So yeah. I think, again, there's this misconception that opportunities are being provided to some people more than others um but if those opportunities are provided and you just don't have the tools to take them up you you just can't you know um so i got into this team at netbank um which is a really really lovely team and <laughs> I, I didn't know that so to be honest on my first day i had uh, i mean i landed the day before from Japan and then I told them I'll be there the next day you know because I wanted to show them I'm, I'm ready and I'm, I'm ready to go I'm committed <laughs> I'm going to do this it was a foolish idea absolutely foolish um but I did it I, I got there the day afterwards and I was just in absolute survival mode um from my experience in Japan and that was it that yeah and and in, on my leaving Japan um I said goodbye to some friends who I just finally made um, because, as I mentioned, not many people spoke English. So I, I had a group of friends, but it took a while to develop. And then they left to go back to whatever country they were from because they weren't Japanese. Um, and then I went through this submission of conferences with my sensei, who, God bless him, I really think he's a lovely human. I really enjoy him, even though. Um, <laughs> I didn't get that technical um, education. But yeah, so there was a lot of pressure of submitting for conferences and writing paper for conferences. And then at one of the conferences, there was this huge earthquake, which was a bit traumatizing. And then um, my dad came to visit and he's a bit of a law scorp. So looking after him in this, in this absolutely different environment while I was trying to finish off my master's. Um, coming back to South Africa, I, I was really going through too much um, and I mean, it's relative to what other people are going through, right? Other people, especially mm -hmm. in terms of 2020, have been through a lot more. Um, but I wasn't completely stable when I decided the next day I was going to go into NetBank and prove my worth. Um, <laughs> um, 
And that survival mode was also particularly driven by this thing of being a black female in a technical workplace. And I had the biggest guns in my pockets under my coat ready to just like pull them out and start just being like, I'm here. I'm make a difference. And it was in my first week where I was still in the survival mode, like I'm going to represent, you know, because um, mm. I'm here, I've been given the opportunity and I have the, the obligation to make sure that, that I do the right things. Um, and, and people in my workplace kept talking about this Pat, Pat, Pat. Um, and they were talking about Pat being this really powerful person who made important decisions about whether things passed or whether they didn't pass, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I wasn't quite sure of the net bank structure, so I didn't quite understand the hierarchy. And eventually I get the feeling and the sense that Pat is female. And at some point <laughs> I come back to this to my desk and there is this black woman um, with her hair in braids, in like tight corner blades, braids, with a t-shirt and jeans, and she's sitting like just next to my desk, on, on the desk. Um, mm. <laughs> And my executive points to this woman and said, this is Pat, Pat Mikulungongi. And at that point, I mean, I must have held absolute composure, but, and and I actually haven't told her the story and maybe I should. Um, And I just melted to the floor um, because here I was in this environment that was being led by this powerful black woman that everybody respected. Mm. And... I just, I felt safe, you know. I felt like everything was going to be okay. I didn't have to be in survival mode. I'll, I'll be fine. Um, and that was, that was like, again, the universe is just like, whew, thank you so much. <laughs> it, it's giving me all these, all these treasures. But at that point, I was just like, I am exceptionally lucky to be um, in this type of environment and in this situation where, yeah, I just feel safe as a black woman in, in tech. Um, and that was yeah. my introduction. So from then onwards, of course, I was still representing <laughs> um, and pulling my weight, and I still continue to do so because I do feel the added pressure of representing a minority that, that has a hard time. Um, but at the same time, I'm doing it for unpacked. <laughs> um, and also just because it's, it's what I do. Um, mm. Yeah. I absolutely love that story. You should definitely tell her. That's so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So what have been some of the highlights and the lowlights of your journey? Um, So to be honest, from the point, like when when I mentioned that biomedical engineering really knocked it out of me, especially after all of that pressure that I put probably on myself in university, I think in about... 2014, my mental health really started taking a dip. Um, And I think in 2015, it started manifesting itself in physical health as well. Um, Because I I was playing a lot of netball with the medics team in the Vits Internal League. So I I was supposed to be this incredibly fit human and I, I looked sharp, but it just kept doubling over because my body was, was conking out. Um, And I had a bit of a break in, in 2015 because 
electrical engineering fourth year is, is not that bad. <laughs> um, oh no, maybe that was 2015. No, it was, it was yeah, it was 2015. Um, and then into 2016, I went to Japan, which was a bit difficult because leaving my family and everything I knew to go to this weird place. Um, and then 2017, 2018, my brain was not on my side in terms of me being a happy human. Um, and then last year, 2019 also was really, really tough in terms of me coming back and adjusting to South Africa. Because you, you kind of assume that there's a place for you here at home when you return yeah. home. <laughs> it's home after all. It's supposed to be that place. Yeah. Right. And, and I thought I'd learned the lesson about expectations, right? And, and to let go of expectations. But I, I had this expectation that there would be the space for me here. And I, I was really desperate for that space because I've gone through a really tough time in Japan. But um, people move on with their lives, you know, and people have their own issues that they need to work through and deal with. And um, that space really wasn't there um, in the way that I that I thought it would be. Um, and <laughs> yeah, adjusting to all of that um, was a lot. And I also went and then. Being me, I like to take on things when I'm feeling stressed because then I don't have to deal with the stress or with whatever it is is pulling me down and I can just keep achieving. Um, and so I organized with a bunch of new friends that Machine Learning for Women workshop started giving talks on machine learning fairness um, and pushing machine learning fairness within the community. Um, started a coding school um, at JP High School for girls to get girls coding. I was just doing all of these things, um, and and I was crashing. I was just crashing, continuously going through the cycle of pushing and crashing and pushing and crashing. And I think as much as um, I achieved in, in that period, and, and I imagine a lot of women go through a similar experience where they just keep pushing and they just keep achieving. Mm. Um, and, and you do reach a point where you just crash. I mean, with those women who were organizing that machine learning workshop, um, so many of the women at some point, I would contact them and be like, are you ready with this? And they're just like, I can't, I'm not there anymore, you know? And yeah. we had multiple like breakdowns of the organizers of this thing. And it was just because everybody's just trying to do their best and they're just spreading themselves so thin and, um, yeah, so I think that was a major low light of this entire process of me just not being able to um, give myself a deep enough hug and, and tell myself to calm down and slow down and, yeah. and to take care of my mental health. Um, what What would you say, to, if there's a listener listening in now and currently going through something like that, what would you say to them? I would tell them that there is beauty and imperfection. <laughs> Um, and, I, and I think that's that's the highlight of what I've learned through this in, in entire process is the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi, which is finding beauty in things that are imperfect, incomplete, and impermanent. Um, and it really is about letting go of, of trying to make sure everything is within your control um, and, and letting go of trying to make sure that everything's perfect, that you are perfect, that you are doing all that you can do because sometimes you just really need to take a break and take care of yourself so that you can keep contributing in the way that you want to contribute. Yeah, yeah. so slow down. Yeah. 
Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Yeah. <laughs> say no. Yeah. Slow down and say no. And 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 is that your the highlight of your journey, or is there another highlight that you wanted to add? Ah. <sighs> I, th- I think that has been the highlight because, I mean, this year for me, although 2020 has been absolutely horrific for so many people, yeah. um, and I think a part of that has helped contribute to my gratitude for just everything that I have at the moment. And gratitude is something that I haven't always practiced in the way that I practice it now. Um, but I'm in a very, uh, I'm in a place where I just feel a lot more peaceful and and a lot more loving and gentle um, and generous with myself. Generosity is, is very important in terms of making sure you take care of yourself. Um, so I think this, this state um, is the highlight of that entire process because even though I might have chosen a different path or gone to therapy a little bit earlier or something like that, um, I wouldn't have landed up as a person I am now. And um, even though this person still needs work in different avenues, I'm, I'm still kind of happy with where I am. And I think me as myself in this moment is, is quite a reward for everything that I've gone through, and I'm very happy with that. But in terms of highlights, I mean, you know, uh, I think I've I've really had an incredible journey, and I'm so appreciative for so many things. I mean, just the experience of Japan as a whole and the places I got to see and food that I got to eat, even though some of it I didn't know what I was eating. Oh my gosh, girl, there's one time they just gave me this thing and I found out afterwards that it was whale and I was absolutely devastated. Did it, did it taste good? I don't know, because I'm just like, did you enjoy it? No, I can't say that I enjoyed it very much. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, and also just journeys with people, I think. In that letting go process, I've also learned to um, be better, more comfortable with letting go of relationships and allow relationships to have their time in my life. Um, and I've met some really incredible people who have given me some really incredible experiences. Um, yeah, there, there is so much in terms of highlights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm very, I'm like, I'm so happy for you and that you've come to this place and like, um, like what you were saying now, it's it's so important. Gratitude to yourself. Um, I mean, sorry, generosity. Mm. <laughs> my, 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 now, gratitude to yourself is also important, girl. <laughs> that too, yes, yes, 100%. 100%. And, you know, being generous to yourself, give a little bit more. Like, we're always so quick to give to others, but then mm. neglect mm. ourselves. So it's definitely so important. Um, I want to ask you now, what is what is the worst career advice you've ever received? I don't know. Have I received career advice? <laughs> Even if it's like unasked, like you know, sometimes just people will like just advise you and <laughs> maybe I walk around with a with a resting. I don't know what kind of uses you are. If I can swear on here, maybe I walk around with a resting. Yeah, people don't feel like they're allowed to um, <laughs> give me career advice. <laughs> Um, and 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 maybe it's because I've I've really pushed back, and, and oh, that's something that I need to learn. Um, pushed back against certain criticisms of how I navigate mm. through the corporate world. I think some things I have been told is not to cause too much trouble. 
for example. So mm. um, me being a, a woman of color within a machine learning space, I make a lot of noise about whether we're making the right decisions and um, whether we're doing the right thing, if we're hiring right the people, if our team is um, representative of the population of South Africa. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I have heard um, some people out of the love in their hearts and the concern for me and, and where my journey will go to, to not be so loud about it. Um, and, and I think that's terrible advice. <laughs> yeah, I... I 100% agree. <laughs> That's definitely make the noise. It's it's mm. worth it in the end, especially if it's something you believe in deeply. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. So now this is my favorite part of the podcast. We ask my favorite question, and this question comes from my favorite quote that I live in, that I live by and love, which is, "Be who you needed when you were younger." Mm. And with that quote in mind, I believe that um. If there's something that you needed to hear or someone that you needed to see or look up to when you were younger, there's definitely someone out there today who needs to hear that or hear, hear that same message or see that person. So if you could go back in time and just have a chat with the younger Pilonomi, what would you say to her? I don't think I'd have a chat with younger Pilonomi. Um because oh, like, <laughs> I think I'd just give her a really big warm hug, you know. Like she's doing, mm-hmm. she's doing okay. It won't all go perfectly as the way she plans. She won't always feel like things are okay, but she's she's doing fine. I'll just give her a hug. Um, and the reason why I say that is is because I I believe in the butterfly effect. You know, um, a couple of words yes. here might have just changed my path absolutely completely, and and I'm quite happy with with what the world has presented for me in my life. Um, yeah. But having said that, I know. Exactly. Well, maybe not exactly, but I know there were things that little Bilunomi wanted that um, she didn't know how to get and she didn't know how to ask for. Um, and I think of a lot of that was was with her inability to um, to be vulnerable. I think, in a sense, um, like <laughs> me telling this story now, there'll probably be a whole lot of people who'll be like, "Wow." You went through so much, whatever, I would have never guessed. Um, and mm. I think younger Bilunomi just never felt like she was allowed to not be okay. Um, mm. And I think that's that's the first thing to tell her or anybody else who's, who's at that age that it's okay to not be okay. It's also okay to ask for help. Um, but more importantly... Yeah, I think to not expect of others what you expect of yourself um, in, in terms of how much you will provide or how much you give or, or whatever. And just do it out of, out of the good of your heart um, and just realize that everyone's going through their own things um, and they're not, they're not not there because... They don't want to be. They either don't know <laughs> or they're just going through their things or they don't know how to be there for you. Um, yeah. And then the final thing I would tell her is just to be more gentle with herself. Um, making mistakes is something everyone does and you don't have to beat yourself up about it because they don't. <laughs> At least not as, much as, not as much as you did. Yeah. So I'd just give her a hug and be like, I'm here. 
I'm here if you need to talk. Like, of all the podcast interviews we've had, I've never had someone say, I would actually just give her a hug. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. She so needs it. That. She needs it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Everyone should just oh once in a while give themselves a hug. <laughs> Be like, you're doing okay. You know, sometimes you don't need words. You just need, you know, just... A, just a hug yeah say it's okay also a little yeah. bit of knowing would probably lash back and be like i'm fine um i don't need your advice whatever whatever <laughs> so, <laughs> a hug would do. It, might, it, it might be a little hard to get there but you, you, yeah 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 a hug would disarm oh, her it would catch her off guard <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, this has been absolutely amazing. I'm so happy to have had you on the show and have you here sharing your story. Um, how can our listeners like get in touch with you or just follow your journey? I I believe um, you're organizing an event for machine learning, women for machine learning, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so we'll probably, and if my other homies hear me talking about this, they, they might send me a message and be like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I think... COVID year has been a year to sit oh and, and be chilled a little bit. Um, and I think we'll probably start looking at organizing again things next year. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, I'm very bad with technology that doesn't involve me coding something to make something. So in oh, terms of... Like in terms of communications outside of my um, work requirements, I'm, I'm bad. I do get to it eventually, but it sometimes takes me quite a, a while. So I think people could reach out to me on Twitter um, and, and Instagram. Um, I'm on those socials and I'm probably more likely to respond there than I would on a place like LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, mm. And yeah, I'm, I'm always willing to chat. It may take me a while to be a bit more willing to the point where I can, I can chat fully. But yeah, always, always happy to, to help and engage and, and see where people are at. Hmm. No, this this has been absolutely amazing. I can't wait to see what else you do along your journey. Um, you're a big inspiration to so many so many young women. I believe, like especially in this industry and in your field specifically. So thank you so 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 much once again for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Bella. Thank you for giving me the platform. Um, I think, like you say, often when women are asked to talk about their experience, they they expected to talk about the good stuff and and sometimes that isn't what the the story is all about so yeah thank you very much it's been really lovely i'm looking forward to the next round of of um talks that you have with people and learning from other people as well (laughs) and just hearing about them too Thank you so much for listening to She Brigade. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend you think will enjoy it too. You can also share it on your social media and tag us at She Brigade. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the show notes. We'd also love to hear your feedback, so feel free to email your questions or your suggestions to info at shebrigade.com or DM us on Instagram or Twitter at She Brigade. Until next time, bye.